Hi there, and welcome back to I Hadn't Considered That. I am your host, Vanessa Tori. This week, I am sitting down with Catherine Finney, who I absolutely had to have on the show after I got a copy of her new book earlier in the summer. The book is called Build the Damn Thing, How to Start a Successful Business if You're Not a Rich White Guy. And I'll let you know a little bit more about Catherine because she has been so amazingly successful, but her success has not come very easy for her. Before we get into the actual interview, there's a couple reminders that I want to give you. First of all, this is going to be the last podcast that is going to be publicly available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. The podcast is going to be moving to Meeting in the Middle, which is my Substack, and is going to roll into part of that. So that will be moving forward. So all of the old episodes, including this one, will be available in perpetuity. But after this one, all the subsequent ones will be under the Substack. So please go to the show notes and all of the information on how to access the Substack is right there. So I ask you to go over there, subscribe, and then we can continue to have these wonderful conversations. So speaking of wonderful conversations, I was talking to a friend of mine a few weeks ago, and I was just telling her a little bit about what I was trying to do in getting everything started up with this new creative venture that I have. And she followed up with a wonderful gesture of sending me an inspirational quote that she thought could really help me. And I had not ever heard of the person who had said the quote. And so, of course, ever the curious person that I am, I went and I Googled the person and his name was Brian Chesky. I don't know if you've ever heard of Brian Chesky, but he is one of the founders of Airbnb. And of course, when I looked up the picture, what is he? He is a young white guy. So now I'm intrigued. Like, what is this guy's story because I just finished this book about how difficult it is for minorities and women to start up companies because they don't sort of walk in the door with something on their side, meaning that they're a rich white guy. So it turns out that Chesky started Airbnb in San Francisco in 2008 with a friend of his. At, there was a design conference that had come to San Francisco and Chesky had gone to the Rhode Island School of Design. So when the conference came to town, he and his roommate decided that what they were going to do is take their air mattresses and blow up the air mattresses and just put them on the floor and then put out an advertisement that said, hey, if you need a place to stay and you want one reasonably priced, come, you can stay on our air mattresses and we'll make you breakfast. And so it was sort of like that website that was around years ago where people could advertise that you could sleep on their couch. It was like a, a couch surfing website. So they thought that this is an idea that they could maybe get some traction with. So they contacted a friend of theirs because they needed to fund this project. And this friend that they had gone to design school with said that he would absolutely help them out. And what he would do is he would print the cereal boxes for this novelty cereal that they had decided that they would try and market, which was politically based. So you had like Obama O's, things like that. So the college friend agreed to print the boxes for free for a cut of the sales. And so the guys would go to like Costco and get massive amounts of cereal and just kind of rebox it into these branded cereal boxes. Well, it went very well because people liked the cereal boxes, but it didn't do so well in trying to fund Airbnb. So they met with another friend of theirs who had ended up pitching the startup to Y Combinator, which is the country's largest startup accelerator. Of course, how did the pitch get in front of Y Combinator to begin with? Well, that friend that they went out to dinner with sent an email personally to the founder of Y Combinator and said, hey, I had the dinner with these guys and I think that they have this great idea. Can we possibly get them in to hear what their pitch is? And so after that email was sent, Y Combinator agreed to hear their pitch. And then Y Combinator decided to give them $20,000 in exchange for a 6% share of Airbnb. These guys are walking into the largest incubator, the largest opportunity that people have in San Francisco to get funding for a project. They have no experience in hospitality. They have no customer base to speak of, and they don't have any experience in building websites or marketing as such. And yet these guys walked away with $20,000 in their pocket to go start up Airbnb. So at the same time that this is happening, and Catherine touches on this in the interview, Catherine, who had started one of the first fashion blogs ever, 
tried to pitch a subscription box for women of color to some venture capitalists who didn't give her the seed money because they did, it didn't make sense to them. They didn't think that there was a market for this, despite the fact that Catherine had over a million monthly visitors to her blog, which was called The Budget Fashionista. So these are two very different stories. I went and revisited Catherine's book and really just had so many questions. So this was an amazing opportunity for me to kind of pick her brain and really get more of an idea of who she is and how she's gotten into this business so that she could share some of her insights with us. So a little bit about Catherine. Catherine is an author, researcher, investor, entrepreneur, and businesswoman. She is the founder of Genius Guild, a business creation platform that uses the venture studio model, Lab and Venture Fund, to invest in Black entrepreneurs building scalable businesses. And she is the founder and board chair of the Dooney Fund, a social platform that provides micro-investment to Black women entrepreneurs. Her story is inspiring, she is energetic, and I could not love her more, and I hope that you do as well. So sitting with me today is Catherine Finney, and I am so excited to have her here because I follow her on Instagram, and when I started seeing her posts about her new book that she had coming out, I was fascinated by the idea behind it, and it's called Build the Damn Thing, and when I started seeing her talk about it more, I could not wait to get my hands on the book. So much so that I think I had commented on Instagram that I couldn't wait to get my hands on it. And you, Catherine, had responded back on all of the different ways that I could get my hands on the book early. And so sign me up for that. Ran mm -hmm. down to the Barnes and Noble, which is like who goes to an actual brick and mortar bookstore these days. There, and, and, and you found one. And, that was and I did. <laughs> I did. And it took some Googling and it was like 10 miles away, but I did it happily and then tried to hide my wallet, like just zero focus going in, getting out, like got to get it done. And when I got home and it was, um, it was some serious uh, pool reading, summer pool reading for me, which was great because it's like an excuse to go sit by the pool and devour this. And I have it highlighted, like it is annotated, like you have no idea. Mm -hmm. And that's when I wanted to reach out to you to see if you would come and talk to us about it because I had so many questions because as I'm reading this, I'm realizing that as I move around my space as a middle-aged woman who's trying to figure out what the hell to do with her life now, that there's so many obstacles that I see and there's so many things that I see that women are up against that when I heard your story, and listen to your experience. And there were so many things that I hadn't considered about that, but it was also this startling reality that how I feel and what I'm intuiting is mm -hmm. not just me. It's not in my head. Like this is a real thing and you quantified mm -hmm. it and then you gave information. And then there was part of me that was like, there was a lot of, I, I felt some anger <laughs> reading parts of your story, but that was followed by this incredible empowerment. So I can't wait to dig into this book, but if you could tell us a little bit about you, about your background and sort of how you came to be where you are now. Yeah, I uh, am from the Midwest um, and I always start with that because it is truly colored how I, I view the world. Um, I grew up in 1980s in Milwaukee where my father was a brewery worker and he worked for Schlitz Brewery. Many people know Schlitz from Laverne and Shirley. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, it was, and and it was an amazing community. Um, I grew up in a community of people, people who who worked, who built things, who gathered, and that community was completely disrupted um, when the breweries left. And what happened in Milwaukee was no different than what happened in other parts of sort of the manufacturing belt of of America, which was you know. Wisconsin, Gary, Indiana, Detroit, Michigan. And I think it's really important that, especially seeing how, where we're at as a country right now and the polarization to understand like kind of where it started. And a lot of it did start from these companies leaving and completely disrupting the fabrics of these communities. But my father had a vision for himself. 
um, that was larger than what would normally be allowed for a middle-aged black man. I mean, and he did a lot of very smart things. One, he married my mother. That was probably one of his smartest choices <laughs> for, for obvious reasons, not only because I'm here, but my mother um, also had a vision and could see talent really well and helped him to nourish his talent. He wouldn't have become who he became if it hadn't been for her. But also he just had this aptitude um, and found himself at a workforce development center, took a course in C++, completely changed my family's life. And so oh we moved gosh. to Minneapolis when I was like a, a kid. And um, of course, for college, it would have made sense for me to go into computing, right? Did not. Um, <laughs> became an epidemiologist, a Yale-trained epidemiologist and worked abroad and came back because my father became ill and it was really difficult to be, you know, in Tremel Shrake, Egypt on the Sinai Peninsula and have a sick parent. Um, this right. is pre-Zoom days. So you, you, you couldn't FaceTime or Zoom. It was just, you were either here or you weren't. So I came back and didn't know exactly what I was going to do. Fell in love, got married and was kind of reeling up to the death of my father and started this thing that I didn't know was going to turn into something big. It was a blog. And I started it because I was bored. <laughs> I mean, and I was living in a place where I had no friends. All my friends lived in New York. I was in Philly and I was shopping and spending tons of money and started this blog to talk about how I was like trying to manage my budget. And it's something about when you, you create something, being in the right place at the right time, this was before people had to be in budgets. If we remember back in 2002, 2003, things were great. Like money was flowing, you know, right. for a lot of people. There was access to, to cash. You could buy a house and not really have a job, right? Like you could do all these sort of things that they made capital seem um, easy to get. We now know that wasn't true, that there was a asterisk, a caveat to that, but we didn't know that in 2002 and 2003. Many of us didn't know that. But I, I was, I had a big student loan from Yale and I was young and I needed to figure out how I was going to live. And so I was forced to live on a budget. And so this little blog that was started a couple of years before the crash of 2008 became a thing and led to a book and led to a lot of stuff. Um, and I saw firsthand as a woman being in a space where there are very few of us being a black woman in the space where there was like no black women, how incredibly difficult it was building a tech company. Sure. Um, we were, were dismissed. I remember one person saying to me, women, he didn't think women were reliable consumers online. I mean, you know, again, 20 years well, come later. Come on, we are the biggest <laughs> consumers online. We're the biggest, because we were the biggest consumers even then, but like no and, one was counting us. Is built on us shopping. It's built right? on us. We are the backbone of the capitalist system here in the United States. But we sure. had been so dismissed. Um, and it used to be back in the day, the worst thing you could call someone was a mommy blogger. It was a derogatory term that they would use for us. Um, first of all, moms make all the decisions in the household, like for everybody. I'm a mom, I make all the decisions. Um, we are the most powerful people probably in the world, I would think, because we are actually influencing the next generation directly in many ways. Um, and not just those who are biological mothers, those who are caregivers and nurturers to children in general, whether you have your own children or not, we are incredibly powerful. We influence everything. <laughs> so you, and, and they would say this to me with a straight face and not blink as if it was fact. And that's one of the things that I learned a lot from being in the, in the tech space is this how much these guys speak as if it is fact of whatever they're saying, whether it is true or not, whether it is based on any sort of empirical evidence, doesn't matter because they're saying it, it's fact. And one of the things that came out of that is, and I say this to the companies I invest in now, I said, you know, pretend like you're a privileged white guy. Like pretend that you are like a mediocre white guy because there's right. no one more confident than a mediocre white guy. 
So like I'm like the confidence in which they have is like incredible and impressive. And I love it for because it's something that we can take. And many times we are the smartest people in the room. So we are not mediocre. So if we just take a little bit of their confidence and add it to our intelligence and brilliance, imagine what we can do. Imagine how we can show up. Oh, absolutely. It's funny. I will have to show you when we're done. I have a cross stitch that I am working on right now. <laughs> yeah. And it says carry yourself with the confidence of a mediocre white man. I'm telling you, it's like, it's impressive. It's impressive yeah. how confident they are. Right. And because it is, they, they have, they have no fear because I don't feel like they need to fear mm -hmm. anything, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Fear has not been part of their knowing since they were kids. Boys fear physical things right they fear yeah. maybe getting hurt but even then i mean you see kids boys jumping off the roofs yeah. of homes in the pool because they don't even fear that they don't even fear the physical pain but as girls we are taught to fear the world around us minorities yeah. are taught and indoctrinated that the world is a yeah. dangerous place for them because that is continually reinforced over and it's over reinforced. again yeah Right. So we don't walk the, the world the same way they do. We don't. And it's a privilege that they have. And in the book, I talk about, you know, entitled versus builders, right? Entitled yes. are the people for whom they don't have to think about how they move in the world because the world is created for them. It's created for their comfort. And builders are everyone else who we do have to think about how we, we move in the world. We do have to think about how we show up because the world wasn't created for us. It wasn't created for our comfort or for our benefit. And so we have to think about how we build companies. We have to think about how we show up in rooms. We have to think about everything in terms of how we dress and how we present ourselves. And these are things that entitled don't have to think. Um, and, and I think that's that's the thing when you are in positions of power in which, you know, if you are a wealthy white guy um, who's gone to one of these big institutions, you, you don't have to think. You can say to a woman that women are not consumers and say it with a straight face because there's no repercussions for you saying that because you are in this position of power and your power has been normalized. Mm -hmm. Where someone like me, you say that and I'm like, how do I respond? Like, I literally have to think about how I respond to you because if I respond in certain ways, you're going to say I'm a, a, you know, an aggressive black woman. But if I don't respond, they're going to say I'm passive, you know? And it's like, so I have to calibrate, like do mental calibrations about how I respond to you. And that's a privilege that you, you, you don't have to think of you know, you're privileged and you don't have to think of that, but I do. And one of the things I say and build a damn thing, like I wonder, and this is something I've always pondered, how many amazing things would have been created if us builders didn't have to think in that, if we didn't have to waste brain energy, figuring out, sorry, waste brain energy, figuring out how to communicate in a non-threatening way with the powers that be if that we had the opportunity to take that brain space and create and build um because what i do as an entrepreneur and even the companies i invest in as a vc we just want to build our companies like we don't want to have to do you know uh ad hoc you know race and gender relation courses for people we don't want to have to think through that i want to talk about the problem i'm solving i want to talk about the companies I'm investing in, the problems they're solving and what they're building and how exciting it is and how they're tackling these like really thorny issues, but they're, and they're doing it in a way that's ethical and community-based and also is, 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 is good business. That's what I want to talk to you about. I don't want to talk about the other stuff, um, but I find that we're often put in positions to talk about the other stuff. Well, I think it's out of necessity, right? Yeah. So it, it's... Builders, and um, I'd love for you to just explain really quickly, builders and entitled have to approach their work from a very different um, strategy point as far as how you're getting into it, because both groups are trying to get to the same place, mm -hmm. but 
the entitled, what I took away from this is there is a direct route from point A to point B, but the builders have to go from B to C to D to E. And then back to B maybe once again, and then do like, and then maybe skip to D. Yes. It's, it's, It's not a straight path for us. And I think one of the assumptions that's been made, because most business books, frankly, have been written by entitled. Um, they, they write as if you do this, you do this, and then this happens. And that is true for many entitled, that if you follow this path, you go to Stanford, you um, link up with a, another developer if you're not an engineer yourself, you create this idea, you go pitch it to a VC on Stan Hill Road, which is the road in, in San Francisco where all the VCs are located. You go pitch on Stan Hill Road, you pitch it to someone who also went to Stanford, who maybe also created the company with their roommate, and maybe they're 10 or 15 years older than you, and you pitch it and they see themselves in you because they were you. And then they write you a a nice sizable seed check and you take that and you build and you might win or you might not win on this one. But what they're going to say is, wow, you learned a lot from that. And so we're going to invest in you again. And the reason why we know you learned a lot is because you were us and we also learned a lot. And this is exactly what we're seeing with Adam Newman, who was the founder of WeWork, who just got $350 million for a company that isn't even in existence yet. Um, you know, and he fell pretty spectacularly at WeWork, but still got a second chance. And it's because well, we know he learned a lot and we know that he can do better because we have seen it in him. But when you're a builder, you know, maybe you didn't go to Stanford for many, many reasons. Maybe your family couldn't afford it. Maybe you didn't even know Stanford existed. So you went to the University of Illinois, which actually has a pretty strong computing um, program. And you don't have connections to go to Sand Hill Road. And so you are a woman, a person of color, and you go to Sand Hill Road to put your company and there's no connection. Um, one of the things they call it is pattern matching, right? That I know that this is going to work because everything I've seen that has worked has been like this. It's been this type of founder. It's been this type of company. One of the things I find interesting about pattern matching is that it never questions the other side of it is that all the companies that have failed have also fit that same pattern too, right? Um, And so you go and you pitch and they don't see a connection because you don't fit their pattern. Right, you don't look like them. You don't don't look like like them. You didn't sound like them. You didn't go to the same networks as them. You didn't go to the same schools. You don't eat at the same lunch. You don't even live live in the same neighborhood. And there's no connection. And, and they can't see it. And therefore you struggle. You have to bootstrap. You have to go into your 401k. You have to take grants. You have to do all these other things to get to this sort of proof point. And, and it's harder. It's infuriating. It's limiting. Um, and one of the things that I think has been interesting the past couple of years is that there's been more investors who are people of color and who are women. And now you're seeing, starting to see spaces open up um, and you're starting to see more companies getting, getting funded. And now you're starting to see the emergence of actual unicorns, which are companies that are worth over a billion dollars led by black women and women of color now. But that was because you started to see investors come in who were women and diverse and who could spot the opportunities that frankly, the others couldn't because they just didn't have the domain knowledge of of the community, didn't have the domain knowledge of even um, what it takes to build. And so it becomes really difficult as a builder, not impossible at all to build, but it becomes harder because you don't get that straight path. You don't have that that privilege of a straight path. Well, what I found interesting is that when you when you started Budget Fashionista, you were learning everything as you as you went. And I remember um, back in those days of blogging when it was just bare bones. What you see is what you mm-hmm. get. Mm-hmm. Everybody was on Blogger or just you know whatever it was that was the yeah. small space that that there was for us to put out whatever content we were generating. But you acquired a vast amount of knowledge, whether it was in coding and and website management, you were self-taught with this and you really worked your tail off to become somebody within the tech world that had credibility and damn it, you did a great job. I mean, hats off to you. 
Thank you. But still, even with all of this, this knowledge that you had acquired, all of this experience that you had, you were still going in to do pitches, still trying to get funds raised to start building your company, and you were still dismissed. Very like much this, so. As, as, as not being somebody who had, you know, for lack of better words, like the, the, the clout that had the credibility behind this, but yet at the same time, you do. And I think that absolutely infuriated me. And then you look at one of the things that I found was so startling was the statistics regarding how few builders, how few companies that are backed by venture capitalists, by that are backed by these incubators, are they are either minority owned, um, and then the numbers there's there's like a dip, a very small number of these yeah. companies that are owned by minorities, people of color. And then even beyond that, it's even lower number when you add being a female to that. So if you are a woman and you are a person of color, this is, I mean, it's like one or 2%. And the vast majority is, is the lion's share is going to the lions already. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's less than 2% of venture funding last year went to female founders. Um, and a little bit less than 1% went to Black-led startups. This is post-George Floyd. Um, even before George Floyd, it was even scarier than that. When I was at Digital and Divided, which is the social enterprise that I founded and was the, the CEO until 2020, we would do this biannual report called Project Diane, where we looked at the industry and sort of tracked what was going on. And what we found was in the first Project Diane that was released in 2016, that 0.006% of venture funding, all venture funding had went to Black women, not even just in a year, just all the venture funding up until December of 2014, only 0.006% had went to um, black women-led companies, um, less than 1%. It was like 0.1% went to black-led companies. I mean, it was, the number was so bad that it was statistically zero. Oh, and, and and so again, if we're not even given a chance to build, <laughs> we're not even given the runway to do that, how do we get in the game? Um, and, and what happened, particularly for people like myself, I remember someone asking me if I was going to raise venture. This was in 2009, and I was a part of an incubator program that was probably one of the worst experiences of my life um, because it was the first time in my life where people literally thought I could not do it. And, you know, being a lifelong overachiever, one of the hardest things is to come into a space where people literally don't think you can do it. And it wasn't based on my skill set. It was based merely on my gender and my race. And, you know, I, I went to Yale. I had graduated to the top of my class. I mean, it was like, you're a black woman, you can't do this. And I'm like, but I was just in class with you people and I beat you, right? Like I was just as good as you. And you're still, think, I mean, not with those exact folks, but it's like, it was just so shocking to me of just being dismissed like that. Um, and it shouldn't have been, but it, but it was. I think one of the things I learned from that is that you, as a builder, you really do have to, um, one, have a clear vision of what you're doing so that you can stay on track um, because there's going to be doubters. Like there's going to be people who literally just don't think you can do it. I mean, that is the reality of a builder. Now, the question is, do you not do it? Of course, you continue to build your company. You build a damn thing. You don't stop. But like, how do you navigate around that? And and one of the, I put a lot of the things that I learned in the book about, you know, creating a personal advisory board. Um, these are people who are pro you. Um, you know, we all have advisory boards that are pro your business, but what about pro you, right? And these are people who just want you as a person to win. So when you do have people saying the craziest, excuse my language, shit to you, because you will have people say crazy shit to you, I guarantee it. As a woman, as a person of color, building whatever it is you're building, you're going to have some craziness. So just, you know, prepare yourself for it. 
um, that these are the people who help you stay on track and keep focus. And so it's, you know, having a comedian. Um, that's one of the positions of someone who makes you laugh because you're going to need it. You're going to need someone who brings levity to situations. You know, um, if I'm on a call with someone who's questioning an investor, because as a VC, we have investors too, they're called limited partners and someone who's questioning whether or not women can build companies. Um, and I'm having this conversation. It's a circular conversation. It's not going anywhere. I need to laugh afterwards. So I don't cry. And so for sure. me, right. One of my, my comedian is actually my son. Um, and so these positions don't even have to be like, you know, mentors and top people. In fact, sometimes they're better. Um, he's my son. He's seven. And it's really hard to get angry when you have a seven-year-old rapping about people who live in the toilet, right? It just helps you like put, <laughs> you know, I you love have this, that like, so much. call with whatever pension fund and you get off and you're stressed and angry and you have this little boy rapping about toilet people. And it's just like, I, I just can't help it but to laugh. <laughs> and it brings it back to like, what am I doing and why am I really doing this, right? Or, um, you know, my mother helps manage family members. Um, as you can imagine, when you come from a, a community that's resource poor um, and, and it seems like you have resources, people call on you a lot <laughs> to do a lot of stuff. And my mom helps manage it so I don't have to say no because I can't say no. Like I, and I don't, many times I don't want to say no, but I really don't have the time to, to be able to do it. And so having someone who can say no for me is really super important so that I don't have to bear that responsibility. Yeah. That's um, a, that's a, that's a woman thing. <laughs> it's a woman thing, right? Or even having a friend who, and this is a very important as you build your companies or build whatever it is that you do is having someone who can tell you the truth. And it's somebody that you hear it from. Because we have people who tell us the truth, but we don't really want to hear from them. <laughs> like, like we don't want to hear what they have to say, but there are certain people who can get through to us. And it's because we know it comes from a place of love. And so having someone say to you who can, who can sort of bring up the mirror and you not feel like they are um, coming after you or any sort of thing, that's really super important to have that person. Um, that person for me, you know, I have a couple of people. One of them is my friend Darlene, who we started um, working together at Digital Divided. She was on the founding team of it and then just continued to work throughout the years. And she's really good at like putting a mirror up for me and helping me sort of see what I'm doing, not in a mirror to be mean, but a mirror to help me self-reflect and to make sure yeah. that I'm like staying true to myself. Um, and so all those are important. There's some other people you can have in your personal advisory board, but those are like my three favorite. Um, oh, I love it. I have, but what I call mine is um, my life committee. Mm -hmm. And exactly. I was so excited when I read that part of your book, because I, I could just kind of used it as a joke. It was when I started my, um, when I started my own work, when I like got my LLC together, I quit my nine to five job. I went full in with Vanessa Tori creative. I'm going to do this. And there were so many different things that I needed that I realized that when I got my life committee together, and yeah, I, I mean, the comedian, without a doubt, I have a friend that will make ridiculous TikToks and send them to me. And it is sheer yeah. joy because it snaps me back to being able to have some levity in my life. It, it's incredible. Yeah. I have people that are like, no, you can't, you can't go to a photo shoot wearing that. Like, that's not, that's not acceptable. Like that, that's the fun stuff for me. But what I realized is that it, it's this collective energy. Mm -hmm. When I, I realized that I had this support because I didn't know what I needed and having a group of people to tap into also gave me the freedom to A, accept that I didn't know everything, yeah. B, to feel comfortable acknowledging that and asking for the help that I needed, and then C, to pull on other people's strengths that I don't have. I am horrible at self-promotion. And I am trying to get over that because how can you be bad at self-promotion and, and grow a company? That's just like, you can't, yeah. you yeah. have to suck it up and do it. Um, and, and so that, that was just something that hit me so 
much as far as the a necessity that we don't even necessarily think about with this. One of the things that I, I want to go back to with the, the idea of the sort of walking into the room and, and acting like an, an entitled. And one of the things that I think, as especially as women, but other builders go through is sort of this sense of imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. That we see ourselves because we've been trained in this manner. We've been taught that we're less than. We've been pushed away from the table um, and not allowed to have that seat at the table. So there's so much questioning, I think, that builders must go through that I know I've felt that I don't feel that worthiness mm-hmm. that like, why, why am I spending so much time fighting for this, this seat at the table that when we get to the point where we recognize, Hey, I do belong there. Yeah. So talk a little bit about what we can do in order to recognize those strengths that are within us to understand that there's going to be failures, there's going to be successes. But if we want to get from point A to point B, even if we go to C, D, E, F, whatever it is, to to keep on pushing. You know, I think one of the things and going back to our comment about mediocre, like I think she wanted to put the confidence of, of, of them. You know, you feel an imposter because again, things haven't been constructed in your image, right? So you, 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 when you come into a space and it's not constructed for you, you come in and you feel it. You feel that it, this isn't for Absolutely. me, right? And so, and an imposter syndrome is reaction to that, right? And I think one of the things that we have to do, and it, it goes back to something a friend of mine said, which I so loved, we were doing a talk at, at Google and somebody had asked her this question, you know, how do you show up when you don't, you know, feel like you belong? And again, going back to me, you're a guy, she was like, realize when you walk into the room, you are the coolest person they met that day. They have not met anyone cooler than you. If you are a woman, a person of color, and you walk into a room and it's all dudes, or if you are, you know, a part of the LGBTQIA community or whatever, where it's like everybody is the same. You're coming into a room where everybody's the same. And here you come being all of you, right? <laughs> you are the coolest thing that they've met. They're going to be talking about you after you left. And that's in a bad way. It's because you come in with a different energy. You come in differently. And there's power in that. There's a lot of power in that. And so for us, it's about reclaiming our power as we show up, realizing that I am the coolest person you're going to meet today. Like you need to meet me. You you want to meet me for no other reason than your day is going to be pretty home, you know, pretty boring. You know, you have all your meetings and then I show up, right? right? And wow, what a day you're going to have because I show up. And I think coming in with that attitude, it really does impact how people respond to you. Um, And it's not cocky, like, oh, you should be happy to meet me. It's like, literally, I am bringing energy. I'm bringing new ideas to you. You have never heard the ideas that I'm going to say. You've never met anyone like me before. Um, Because you haven't, right? We're all unique, incredible individuals. You've never met me before. You've never met anyone like me. And so today is going to be an amazing day. And we're going to have an amazing conversation because you get to talk to me. And and that's amazing. And and to show up like that, at first when she said that to me, I was like, okay, whatever. And the the Minnesotan in me is like, oh no, you know, Uh, (laughs) like, oh no, I don't know if I could do that. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I had lived in New York for a while at that point. I was like, the New Yorker in me is like, of course, like try it out. And I'm telling you, it works. So that's amazing. And it it kind of dovetails into one of the last things I want to talk about is one of the things that I, I've realized with within my own path. So as I'm I'm looking around me doing some things that um that really kind of fulfill me, but I'm seeing people that are doing things that I want to do and, and they are the demographic is young white 
males that are unflinchingly mediocre, yeah. Catherine. Yeah. So I am, I am a writer and I, so I, I just quick story. I'm on Twitter and I see somebody tweet something about who are your favorite writers on Twitter. And so I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll indulge. And I go into this thread and there's a couple names that keep coming up that I've never heard of. So I click on one of these guys and I find his Twitter profile. And of course he's like 28 years old, white guy. And he is like, he's a writer. And what does he do though? He sells writing courses to teach writers mm -hmm. how to write. Right okay. now, Kevin, I have been writing, I wrote my first short story in third grade. I've been writing yeah. all of my life. I have a degree in English. I have taught creative writing. I have never in my life had the audacity to mm -hmm. say I could teach writing. Having having done that, having actually yeah. as part of my profession been paid yeah. by an institution to teach people to write. Yeah. But this guy was a dentist. Yeah, I left dentistry. And so I just reached out to him and I said, I can't find your writing anywhere. If I wanted to read more of your writing, where could I read your writing? Yeah. And he responded that he's been focusing on Twitter. I'm like, you're not a writer, sir. You are a Twitter. <laughs> you're a Twitter. And, yeah. You're and Twitter. this man is making tens of thousands of dollars. That was my aha moment where I yeah. said, I do have the audacity to do this. Yep. And yep. I am going to go into this because there is, uh, it's the bro marketers, right? Is yep. what I'm up against. These bro marketers that are selling a product in which they have no expertise. And so yep. for me, it took a minute to say, I do have the audacity to do this and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do it differently because what I'm selling in a writing course is so much different than what this guy is. Yeah is selling. He's, he's selling people on how to crank out content so you can get paid. I want to have a course where I'm teaching people to cut themselves open, bleed into a computer and get everything that's inside of them out in the most passionate way they can that makes them feel seen and whole. Yeah. Yeah. Totally different product. So one of the things that I want to talk, the last thing I want to talk about is how we can, um, as women, as people of color, as anybody who is a builder, understand the fact that there are rules that have been created for us, but maybe it's time that we create our own rules. Yeah. So lastly, I'd love to talk about things that we can do to break out of the box that we've been told we have to sit in and get into the place where we are calling our own shots. Yeah. I think, you know, one, the whole exercise of just showing up in the room and saying, I'm the coolest person, um, even if you don't believe it. Even if, even at that day, you're like, maybe I'm not the coolest person. Pretend. Um, and there's actually an excellent quote from Rihanna where she talks about, like, even if you don't get it, pretend it. Like, even if you don't think it, pretend it. You know, she's like, I pretended I was a billionaire until I became one. Um, and, and she's definitely a billionaire now. And so I think having that, like, that is one of the first things that you can do. I think, too, realizing that many of the folks who talk with this level of certainty, the powers that be, they actually don't know either. Um, and we're in a world now where everything is a bit topsy-turvy. All the things that were, we were told to be true are not necessarily no longer true. And I think COVID has exposed that, right? I mean, we have from COVID to January 6th to even the economy, Right. Um, you know, it, we're in a recession, but we're not like job, job growth is great, but we're in a recession at the same time. It's like all these things that are really contradicting all the things that we once knew were true. And so the approach I would say to folks is realize that most people don't know the answer. They think they do, but they don't. I remember during the, um, pandemic and then when George Floyd happened and being from Minneapolis, I had family members who were intimately involved in it. And my niece was asking me for advice on just stuff and she was involved in what to do. And I said to her, I can give you some advice from my experience, but none of us have ever lived through a pandemic before. <laughs> so anybody who tells you that they know what's going to happen and what the future looks like is lying because they don't know. None of us know. 
And what's incredible about that, and I said, especially for her, because she's 24, it said that because no one knows, oh my God, you guys get to create that. You can create the new reality because nobody knows what's going to happen. And anyone who says this is the way it works, obviously has not been living in the same world that we have been living in. And so there's a freedom to that. And I would say that to all of us out there, regardless of age, is that we're in a historical moment right now where things are changing as we speak. We are living through it. And as a result of that, all the rules that once existed do not necessarily exist anymore. And being conscious of that gives you the freedom to be able to build in a way that you wanna build. It gives you the freedom to walk in the room and say, I am the coolest person you met today because I know, especially if you've been on Zoom all day, you maybe haven't met even anyone today. So I'm definitely gonna be the coolest person you met. But realizing that we're living in this moment where all the structures that were told to us, and particularly those of us who are Gen Xers um, or baby boomers who were told, this is the way you do it. You work and you get a pension or you do this and this happens. None of those exist anymore. And in order to build in this new space, you have to let it go. Let go of those old structures. Another piece of advice I would give is to hang out with a bunch of people who are under 30. If you do not have someone who's a friend in your network, who's under 30, hang out with them and not necessarily your children, because I think you have certain relationships with your children that I'm talking about people who are a friend who get a friend under 30. Um, If you can't get a friend under 25. And the reason why I say that is, is that the way they view the world is so amazing. They do not have the same hangups we have. And I'll give a a, a, a brief example. I am newly divorced. And we had a team retreat. And we had all sorts of like age groups in our in our team. Um, and but we had, you know, a number of folks who are under 35, my chief of staff, like one of our partners and the fun. And so they were all like talking about me dating. And they were like, Catherine, we want to see your bumble app. And they would like literally, t- and I was like, oh my gosh, well, I don't know. And they're like, give us your app. And they went through and they like reworded what I wrote. They were like, yeah, no, not this picture. Yes, this picture. And then they started going through folks who's like, he can't afford you. He's too short. He's not, like, he's too far away. They're like, that's not how this works. Let us, let us tell you how it works. And then the, the, the mentor became the mentee, right? They gave me incredible advice. And I say that to say that, you know, as a Gen Xer, I was like, oh, clutch my pearls. I can't even getting on the app. Oh my God. I'm like so exposed and blah, blah, blah. And they're like, everybody does it. No one cares. It's okay for you to ask for what it is that you want. What is it that you want? Okay. Put that in your, like, be very clear on that. And, and, and it's a certain freedom that they have, particularly those under 25 that we do not have as Gen Xers, we do not have that same freedom. And it's incredible and it's liberating, particularly as a woman to be around that and to say, okay, this is what you want. So ask for it. And they're very clear and they don't bat an eye. And they're like, this is what I want. And either you give it to me or you don't. And if you don't, I'm going to go over here. And they're not afraid. My 20-somethings, my 20-somethings have empowered me this summer to wear crop tops. I wore a bikini. I had never worn a bikini in my entire life. They're like, why not? Like, right. and I was like, I don't know. I didn't because someone was me. It's like, so, so I say, you know, not only realizing that things have completely changed, spending time with people who are younger because they see the world vastly different than we do, particularly in terms of the structures that exist and how they move in the world is incredibly inspiring. Um, and, and it has helped me enormously, like rethink and approach things very differently. Um, they are very also much about work-life balance, which is not something we were taught. Very, right. very much so. And not even just work-life balance. I'll say, I'll, I'll end on this. I was reading an article in the New York Times about um, a course that a professor was teaching that was based upon Plato's, one of Plato's um, plays and it was this dialogue between what is the pursuit of life is it virtue or is it pleasure and one of the things I think the younger folks have gotten is they have found a way and are figuring out a way to balance both 
that it's not just virtue or pleasure. It's not an either or. And they don't subscribe to a world where it's an either or. It's both. And I think for us as builders, as you build something, um, because building and being an entrepreneur is the hardest thing you can ever do. It's significantly easier just to work for somebody else. But, you know, we, the opportunity to live a creative life in which we control um, is worth all the pain in the work, right? Absolutely, it is. Absolutely, it is. Balancing that both virtue and pleasure is the point of life, is having both and not either or. And as builders, you get to do that. We get to do that. That's incredible. You're such an inspiration. You're such an inspiration and your energy is so amazing. And it is so refreshing to feel that sort of sense of empowerment from you. And, mm-hmm. and it is also an amazing thing to get to see everything that you're doing and not only be inspired by it, but like there's such a sense of pride that I, I feel like I feel proud of you. Is that weird to say? Like, I, no, no, I, I love, thank you for that. I appreciate that. It's just like when I saw the vacation pictures of, I'm like, my God, this woman deserves this. Like she's got her book out. This is, it's going to be a whirlwind. And I I was so absolutely along for that because it it is also, you know, we don't, we don't take a second to reward Mm -hmm. ourselves and to necessarily um, take time to revel in our accomplishments. And I, I love getting to revel in everybody else's accomplishments. I firmly believe um, that we, um, especially as, as people that are, have not been born rich white guys, that the, the key to us finding our community, finding ourselves is to continually celebrate and elevate. Exactly. Right. And so I, I celebrate you. I elevate you. I'm so excited to have got to share this time with you this morning. I'm going to put all of the information in the show notes about how people can find your Instagram, find the book. I cannot recommend it enough to anybody. Even if people are not in an entrepreneurial space, it is so much about building your life on your own terms Mm -hmm. and in a way that is meaningful for you. So thank you so much for all the work that you've done. And thank you. I so appreciate it. It was so much fun. 